Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, please turn to Book of Acts again. We're doing Acts on these Wednesday nights, and it's nice to see everybody here tonight. Um, and as you're turning there to Acts 17, boy, we're moving right along, 28 chapters, we're in 17 already. Uh, but uh, as you turn there, I, I, I used to be very impressed with exciting testimonies. I still am. It's always neat to hear about somebody coming to Christ out of a bad background or whatever and things like that. Uh, and, uh, but many times, uh, some of those testimonies you hear, they turn out to be like shooting stars. I mentioned that this past Sunday a little bit, you know, that uh, some of the, the very uh, entertaining and exciting speakers that are out there in Christendom, you know, are like shooting stars rather than North stars and things. And uh, sometimes you hear a testimony and it's still pretty early in the faith uh, for the person and you hope, Lord, I pray they'll continue on. You know, I pray that they'll be firmly rooted and grounded in their faith and that uh, they'll still be excited like this many, many years from now. Um, I think as the years have passed, I've become a lot more impressed with uh, people who I've seen been who are faithful over the long haul. You know, uh, they believed 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and they've been steadfast in their faith. They kept on serving, kept on finding ways to volunteer. They've showed up, they've served, they've given, uh, they've had opportunities to serve the Lord over the years. They've had ups, they've had downs, you know, uh, but they've been the pillar, uh, pillar, some of the pillars that the church has uh, built upon. And I just love uh, seeing those great, you know, to me, that's become my favorite kind of testimony, you know, uh, not the shooting star ones, but the uh, North Star type ones fixed. And they, you know, people have been able to uh, reflect on their faithfulness over the years. It was great seeing that at David Mitchell's funeral, you know, people speaking words like that uh, about him. Some people you can count on to be reliable. Others you can count on to be unreliable. <laughs> so the question is, are you reliably reliable or reliably unreliable? <laughs> well, today we're going to look at a guy you could count on to be reliable for Jesus. And of course, that's Paul of Tarsus and the Christians who served with him. Uh, so we're in Acts 17 now. And, you know, one of the reasons why we get these insights into multiple places where Paul preached and planted churches is so that we could see some of the patterns that were true in his life and among his workers. And so we're kind of taking all those in as we go through Acts and really seeing that uh, the same things wind up being true today uh, for gospel ministries. Um, I... Um, I think there's very few things where you um, can talk about the Tabernacles history with Dr. R.J. Barber Sr., the dad, that the son doesn't know about, uh, Doug Barber, who I talked to sometimes. Uh, but I posted one online today. It was actually, I don't think he had seen it, uh, if, if uh, I, I understand right from our lunch. But uh, it was an um, article written by the ba Bible Baptist Seminarian, the, the seminary down in Fort Worth, Texas, that uh, the Barber family was affiliated with, and Raymond still is. Um, 
But uh, it, it just was a beautiful notice of his passing, but also some of his work while he was in uh, Danville. It even gave the last title of the last message he preached while he was here. Um, and so I look forward to giving that and showing it to Doug next time. But he texted today, and I know that, uh, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't think he'd seen that previously, but it was in our records. But it said that during the years that the founder of the tabernacle was here, R.J. Barber Sr., uh, he... Uh, planted or helped start 50 churches while he was pastor of the tabernacle. In fact, one of the reasons why he would bring his sons back to be on staff as an assistant pastor, whatever they would call them as they'd come back in, you know, was because he was going to be gone uh, for a few weeks at a time and take people with him. David Mitchell one time, once upon a time went in a quartet with him somewhere to be part of revival meetings and things. And they would, uh, you know, he had a, saw over a hundred uh, preacher boys go into the ministry. And some of those he'd train up at the tabernacle, they'd serve in a capacity here, and then help these church plants get going. And it wasn't uncommon because of the radio ministry for somebody to call and say, hey, can you help us in Martinsville? Can you help us in South Boston? Can you help us in Newport News? You know, and these type things. And many of those wound up turning into church plants, which is pretty cool, you know. And where did he get the idea to be involved in stuff like that? Well, the Apostle Paul shows activity like that. You know, we want every church to be healthy and continue to be healthy. Uh, but, uh, you know, one thing we get to do also is help new churches get going. Uh, and so it's kind of neat, you know, at our state level of involvement right now, uh, the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia have 800 churches. Right now we have 70 church plants in progress. Uh, and that's kind of neat how, you know, uh, it's just going on to the next generation. And uh, we want to be part of ourselves and plant the next generation of churches too. But let's look at Acts 17, one, verses 1 through 10. It says, When they had passed through Amphipolis... And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, some of your translations might read, as usual, <laughs> he went into them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Isn't that great? They've turned the world upside down, and now they're here. I love that verse. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowds and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I read that last verse just to show. Repeat, right? Repeat. Next thing. So as usual is the title of this message. Now, Acts, of course, is the fifth book of the New Testament. And so you've got the four Gospels. The story of Jesus is so important to get right that it's repeated four times as you start the Bible. 
you know, the, the law of Israel was so important that Deuteronomy restates what's in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The time of the kings was such a crucially important time that First and Second Chronicles retells what happened in the time of the kings. But Jesus is so important, the New Testament starts by telling the gospel story four times. And, uh, and then you get to the book of Acts. And the Acts is the history of the movements of the gospel from those first disciples in Jerusalem out till about 60 A.D. or so. Uh, you know, when Acts ends with Paul in house arrest, and he had some more life after that, about five more, five, six more years of life. But the gospel's well situated by that point to get to uh, the, um, all the world. Now, Acts 1.8 was the key verse uh, for the book of Acts. It said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where it started, the city they were in, in all Judea and Samaria, the country they were in, and those next door that were a little bit different, and to the ends of the earth. So we have gone through, as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel saturate Jerusalem in the first six or seven chapters. And then from 8 to 12 or so, get into Judea and Samaria, and then about 12 and 13 going on to the ends of the earth. And now we're really getting to outer parts of the Roman Empire when we get uh, to Acts 17. So Paul had already planted churches around his hometown of Tarsus in Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe within Galatia, and Philippi in Macedonia. And now he's continuing on to uh, the next city up in what is now Europe. He had seen times when a few, only a few believed before he moved on. Other times, great numbers had believed. It had not been easy taking the gospel where it hadn't been yet. Several occasions we saw him experience persecution already, and there's more to come. Attempts on his life have been made. There's been wrongful imprisonments. We saw that in Philippi. Beatings. Yet he kept driving on to reach the unreached with the good news about Jesus. And says in verse 1, after Philippi, Paul went to... Thessalonica. He passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he came to Thessalonica. The Romans had divided Macedonia uh, into, uh, so get on up into where Greece is, Macedonia. They divided it into four provinces and um, or districts. Thessalonica was the capital of the second district, and it was also the most populous city in Macedonia. So after Philippi, he goes to Thessalonica, and this is the largest city in uh, the district of Macedonia. Its namesake was the wife of Cassander, sister of Alexander the Great, daughter of Philip II of Macedon. So, as far as key roads, the Ignatian Way that you might have heard of, it was the mainland route from Rome to the east, ran right through it. It was the chief seaport for Macedonia, so it was kind of like Norfolk is for Virginia. Uh, it was a key city for the expansion of trade, and no doubt Paul saw it as a key city for the expansion of the gospel. Well, in verse 2, I titled this, I Did, I Do, and I Still Do. I had a member back in Waynesboro, S.P. Grant, been in heaven a couple decades now. And I was a youth pastor doing a history of the church there. I love the history. I believe pastors and church leaders should become the number one historians of their churches and things to know how God has, it worked, has worked. Um, and you want to celebrate what God has done. You don't have to compete with it. You celebrate it and do the same things. Because many times what made a church great was preaching the gospel, winning souls, discipling, uh, putting them out in missions and things, and doing ministries and things. And those are all the things we want to emphasize today. So you love to celebrate those things. But I asked S.B. Grant there in the nursing home when I saw him. I was doing a little video history. And I said, uh, 
Mr. Grant, I, I hear that you've, you've made a big impact for Jesus, you know, uh, you know, and I was kind of fumbling in my questions. I was still kind of young in my 20s and things. And he looked at me with indignation and he said, young man, I did, I do, and I still do. <laughs> and so we see that with Paul. He did, he did, was doing, and he was going to do. Uh, in the New King James Version, verse 2 says, as was his custom. In some other translations, it's, it's as usual. And I like that. You could count on Paul to do what he had did. And what he had done, you could set your watch by him. He was there in Thessalonica to make disciples for Christ, who would go on to make disciples for Jesus Christ all around them. If there was a synagogue in the city, what would Paul do? He'd go to it. He'd go right to it. He said, I'm going to start there. Um, so every place, if it had a synagogue, he'd start there. Philippi was an exception because they didn't have a synagogue, so he went to the house of prayer. But those folks at the house of prayer were hoping one day there'd be 10 Jewish heads of households so they could have a synagogue. So Paul was doing the next best thing. To meet his physical needs, what would Paul do? Uh, he, he, he knew uh, if there's no church already, there's no Christians to give you money, he might get some gifts from other churches sending him on. But Paul had learned, uh, I think this was true, by the way, of rabbis. Uh, rabbis would have their students. Uh, they'd learn the Torah. They'd learn the Bible. They'd learn the, the, the law, the prophets and the poets, you know, from the Old Testament. Uh, but they also had to learn a trade, which is interesting, isn't it? Uh, you know, um, man, if I'd learned to do something, I might not still be preaching. So I'm glad I, I'm good for nothing, pretty much. <laughs> but, but they learned to trade. They learned to trade. Um, and what was Paul's trade? What had Paul been taught to do to make some money when he needed to? He was a tent maker. He made mobile homes. <laughs> he sewed them up and sold them, and uh, he would do that. Now, that would help pay the bills, but it did another thing. It would put him right in the middle of the marketplace. And of course, we're used to modern cities, you know, where um, things are spread out, you know, and you've got a nice store and you'll just see a little foot traffic in that store. You make some relationships that way. But man, the cities of uh, ancient times, they had this big old marketplace bazaar type things, you know, full of commotion, people walking here, there, up in everybody's business and stuff like that. So it would have taken others around Paul about three seconds to learn that he wasn't from around here, you know, that he was different, that he didn't worship the gods that they sold. Hey, you're new in town. I notice your shop there, your tent making shop doesn't have any temples of uh, uh, Diana or Zeus or th uh, you don't have any um, idols. Uh, buy some from me. And Paul would be like, not going to do it. I worship the one true God. What? You know? And so it didn't take long for him to stick out as different. But so he'd preach in the synagogue if one was there. He'd plan on preaching there the next week. He was going to do that until uh, the synagogue leaders said, oh, we've gotten word from the Jews in Jerusalem that not to let, you're on our most wanted list. You can't do this, you know. So as he preached and they realized he was talking about Jesus, for him, he didn't see any problem with it because he was Jewish and Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So why not tell people that? And so he did until he couldn't anymore. In the marketplace, he'd mailed friendships. He'd lead people to Christ. He'd um, have them praying. And uh, if they were from a Jewish background, going to the synagogue with him uh, and that sort of thing. So all kinds of things were happening like that. Later, he would write these Thessalonians, and he'd refer to his posture among them and how he was not a burden on them. It's worth taking the time to read it. So from Acts, uh, go to 1 Thessalonians. You're turning to your right until you get to 1 Thessalonians. 
one of the later ones of Paul. So, 1 Thessalonians, and I want to read from chapter 2. Some of the most beautiful words he speaks in 1 through 11 about his heart uh, for not being a burden and being a blessing instead to people. So, to some of these same Thessalonian disciples, he later writes, verse 1 of chapter 2, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi. <laughs> As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. I love verse 7. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love that. Didn't want to be a burden to you. We worked to sell tents to meet needs, uh, our needs. Uh, every once in a while probably a love gift would come from some of the other churches. He commends the Philippians for that in, in, in his letter to them. Uh, he talks about being gentle like a nursing mother. He talks about being um, an exhorter like an encouraging dad, comforting and exhorting. So it's really cool how he does all that. You could count on Paul. Now that doesn't mean he was merely trying to be a good person. He did know he was the chief of sinners. So lost people are sinners who are still dead in trespasses and sins and heading toward experiencing the wrath of God due sins. Saved people, so you're getting to fill in the blank here, saved people are sinners saved by grace who don't trust in their own goodness, but are living by faith in Jesus and seeking to apply God's Word to their lives in reliance on the indwelling Holy Spirit. So at the end of the day, there are only two types of people, and it doesn't allow us to be proud as believers. There are sinners that are still under the wrath of God who need to be saved, and then there are sinners saved by God's grace. Not responsible in themselves for that salvation, but it came to them freely as a gift from the Lord. They didn't do anything to earn it. You know, uh, Jesus is the trophy. We talk about, man, that person's a trophy of grace. Well, Jesus is the trophy, and we just are those who are the objects of His love and saving affection. And He did that while we were yet enemies. Uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I really love about Amazing Grace, this past Sunday I said I like his other song better, but one of the things I love about Amazing Grace is that people sing that all the time, and if they ever just stop and think about it, God will bless them. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
You know, if you'll provide the wretch, he'll provide the savior, right? The knowledge that I don't deserve this, I don't deserve God's love or, or his forgiveness. It comes freely as a gift because it, it says more about who, who God is than me as some kind of trophy, um, which is pretty cool. So I liked how Dr. Brown, my mentor, used to say it. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Now, if dead people live, then they got the spirit inside and they'll want to do the good things we're instructed to do in the scriptures, right? But his mission was to seek and to save the lost, lost like Danny Campbell and like old Wesley over there, you know. <laughs> he came to make dead people live. People alive in Christ know that Jesus is responsible for any goodness in them. So our job, verses 2 and 3, our job is to believe and proclaim the truth of the Bible about Jesus. And it says here in verse 2, that for three straight Sabbaths, Paul spoke to the Jews and Gentile God-fearers. Now, let's see if you guys can help me out here. We know about Jews. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of the ancient hostilities toward Jews and being thrust out of Jerusalem and Rome and places like that. Uh, can anybody give me the brief description of what a Gentile God-fearer was? We've talked about it several times. I just want to see if you're tracking with me on this. We know Gentile means non-Jew, uh, but it says they were God-fearers. Anybody remember? Shy, you're shy. <laughs> See, I know, but I'm not saying I'm shy. Uh, so uh, they could go to the synagogue, but they, uh, you know, the, the Jewish folks said, ooh, they like hearing about Yahweh, but they don't want to be circumcised. They don't want to eat our diet versus the ones they culturally have grown up eating. Uh, so they want to come, let's let them. <laughs> so these Jewish entrepreneurs there at their synagogues, they said, okay, let's let them come and hear about Yahweh. That, that'll make them better neighbors for us. But they can't fully be involved in the life of the church. And I think they would even have them sit in a different place if the building had a balcony, the balcony, or in a different part of the synagogue, you know, Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other, or front and back and, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so these are folks that had fallen in love with Yahweh but didn't want to be cultural Jews. And they were already coming to the synagogue. So when Paul would speak in the synagogue, uh, the Jews were getting letters and correspondence from Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem saying, beware the Apostle Paul. They were skeptical. Um, but these Gentiles were like, huh, this is a way to worship Yahweh without having to uh, get circumcised, without having to do, you know, we don't want to become Jews. We're culturally something different than that. And that's what the gospel was going to do, bring Jews and Gentiles together. Um, so Paul would go into these things. And it says, for three weeks he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And I love these three. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He explained and he proved or demonstrated. Different translations say different things there. Reasoned, explain, prove. And these are all key Greek words. The word for reasoned is dialectic. You, you can hear dialectic in there. Dialectic is defined in dictionary as the art of uh, or practice of logical discussion. So he was reasoning with them, right? He was logically setting points uh, about uh, he's investigating the truth, uh, you know, as, as he does it. In the Greek, it's to teach with the method of question and answer. So this is what Paul did with these listeners who all accepted the authority of the Old Testament. The word for proving is peritithamenos. It means simply pointing out. So he'd reason, then he would point out. 
And then after asking them questions, Paul would open the Old Testament scrolls and he pointed out what they said and then expressed his confidence, that's your fill in the blank, his confidence that Jesus was who the prophets had talked about. I would have loved to have seen this unfold. Can you picture it in your mind? Paul asking these Jewish scholars, uh, so what tribe was the Messiah to be from? And they'd say, huh, the tribe of Judah. Great, he'd say, well, what city was the Messiah supposed to be born in? Ah, Bethlehem, right? And they're patting each other on the back. They're getting these questions right. Then Paul would ask a, a harder question. He'd say, well, did Isaiah say the Messiah would mostly minister in places like Jerusalem and among Jews? Or would he also do great things in Galilee and even for Gentiles? And some would say, well, I, I think he mostly was supposed to come do stuff for Jews, right? We're God's chosen people. And somebody said, no, I remember Isaiah talked about how this would make the Gentiles in the region of Galilee rejoice, uh, you know, when the Messiah would come, that uh, he, he would uh, do great deeds even among the, the Gentiles uh, around Galilee. Um, you can see Paul asking, okay, now when the Old Testament talks about the Messiah, uh, we know he's supposed to be a conquering king who throws off the oppressors of Israel. Uh, but was he also supposed to suffer in the place of sinners before the people at Jerusalem? And uh, they'd go, huh, suffering? What, what are you talking about, you know? And he'd say, well, didn't Isaiah the prophet say that all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him? Didn't Zechariah say the inhabitants of Jerusalem would look on him whom they had pierced? You know, and if there was any doubt, they had all the scroll, scrolls. Most synagogues could pull down the scroll of Isaiah. So Paul probably had these different ones doing Bible studies and, and, and light bulbs are going off all over the place. And then he probably showed them that Jesus had fulfilled those prophecies. The Genesis scroll could show that he was supposed to be of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah was. Micah 5 could show that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah would show the virgin birth, that he'd minister extensively in the Galilee region, that he'd be the son of David, that he would bear the sins of the people. The Zechariah scroll would show that they would look on him whom they pierced. Joel would show the Holy Spirit would be poured out on both men and women, and that's what had happened back at Jerusalem on the day at Pentecost. Well, I just love thinking about that. And for those Gentiles that were there as God-fearers that were falling in love with the uh, Lord and the Scriptures, um, you know, how powerful that must have been for them to see. Well, verse 4, some are persuaded and become a great church. The church of Thessalonica is a great church, even though it started amidst great conflict. Um, some Jews were converted, we're told there in verse 4. Uh, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, what we call the God-fearers, uh, Gentiles, not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And so Scripture is very honest, you know, by telling us uh, this group from the start involved uh, some of the prominent women. One Sunday, not too long ago, I talked about how a uh, British countess had been saved and how she helped lead fellow noble women to the Lord, you know, in her day. Um, you know, when you think about leading women, uh, some of you ladies might point and say, talking about me there, did you hear that? Do you know leading women? <laughs> okay, so the Thessalonian church became an Acts 1-8 church themselves. Uh, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians again. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 8 because if Acts 1-8 said that you're supposed to go to Jerusalem, that's your city, then Judea, your country, 
some area those in the province next door that are a little bit different. And then um, to the ends of the earth. Later, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he commends them. And in verse 6, he says, You became followers in us of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Look what he says in verse 8. For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia, so they're in the city of Thessalonica. Macedonia is their country, their province. Achaia is those next door different than them, kind of like Athens. But also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so we do not need to say anything. So uh, if the model is that a, a church gets planted and then they reach their city and they want to reach out in their state and they want to keep reaching out to their country, those next door that are a little bit different through missions activities and then to the ends of the earth, uh, then Thessalonians was, Thessalonica was that kind of church. Well, some were persuaded, but verses 5 through 10 let us know that some became persecutors of Paul and the church. So some of the Jewish leaders, as we saw happen in other places, were upset at all of this, and they dialed up 1-800-RENA-MOB. <laughs> RENA-MOB to get Paul and those who had converted. Uh, so we hear of a man named Jason who had has, housed Paul and maybe the church in his house. It's interesting because in Romans 16, 21, uh, a man named Jason is called a countryman of Paul's. So maybe they, they had a Sicilian connection going on, a Cilician, I should say, connection going on that had brought them together. together. Or maybe it's a different Jason. Maybe Jason is a different guy. But in any event, in Thessalonica, it immediately cost Jason and others to be followers of Jesus. So he's interacting with Paul. He's excited to be a believer. And uh, all of a sudden, this Renamob comes together uh, from the leaders and guess who gets dragged before the magistrates? Poor old Jason, you know. He's like, wait, I'm still wet from getting baptized. What's going on here, you know? You pulled me before these leaders. And uh, so uh, they had to put their own money as a bond that would be lost if Paul didn't move on. Well, guess what the church wants Paul to do? Move on. So you wonder, did Jason lose his security deposit, you know? Um, so Paul was always honest with converts that being a believer may lead to trouble in this lifetime. For Jason, it happened pretty quick. Uh, I tell you what, um, I appreciate how Paul had said in Acts 14, 21, it's necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I kind of wish somebody had said that to me uh, when I first became a believer. Now look, Danny, you're excited. You got joy. You got peace. You got a new sense of purpose. But let me tell you what, not everybody's going to like it that you love Jesus now. Uh, you're going to experience some trouble in your home maybe, some trouble among your neighbors when you talk about Jesus. Maybe at the school there will be that trouble. I wish that I'd been told that because that was my story like Jason's right away. I went home and said, Dad, man, I got saved. I don't even know what that means, but that's what they told me. I got saved. And I said, you know, uh, I, I, I've turned to Jesus and, and I have this joy and this peace inside. And he got up in my face and he was holding my shirt and he said, boy, he said, he was so angry, like spittle was coming out of his mouth. And he said, let me tell you what, let me save you some time. Don't bring that stuff around home, school, work, etc. That stuff don't work in the real world. And what I didn't realize is, as a younger man, my dad had made a profession of faith in the Billy Graham crusade, and, uh, but there had been a lot happened since then, and he probably had not yet truly been born again yet. You know, He was saved four months after I was, and I'm pretty sure that one stuck, and he's become a good dad in the Lord uh, to me. You know, 
But, um, uh, you know, I, I went to school um, and all of a sudden uh, the Christians uh, were still wary of me because I used to be a real turkey toward them and make fun of them and stuff. And then I was one of them, but they didn't believe that. And so, you know, the guy that led me to the Lord, I was friends with him. And, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, it was just hard those early days. And uh, but Jason, man, he got trouble right away, didn't he? And Paul, of course, later wrote two great letters to the Thessalonian church. He's thankful they've withstood persecution. So it got hot in Thessalonica. Thessalonians has wonderful words about you received the word in much affliction. I just read them a few minutes ago. When you guys received the word, it was in much affliction. You didn't have material gain uh, right away because you came to know Christ. He reminds them they need to endure despite hardship. And they were to keep in mind the rapture and the second coming of Christ, but, and that their struggles were temporary to compl- compared to God's future plans for them. I said it earlier, but I love that charge in verse 6. You might put a little smiley face by it or a star, because it says, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Think about how those non-Christians would have, would have had to say this. You know, So... You know, what's interesting is there's a lot that seems to Christians right now to be upside down about our world, isn't there? Uh, The way our politics are, you know, the way that uh, our uh, laws are being passed that just are so uh, offensive to God's word and to God. You know, we, we have for many years now been inviting God to judge us by rejecting his truth and putting that into legislation and into court decisions and into uh, movies and TV and songs and different things like that. Uh, It's one thing for very lost people to do that and get media attention from it and even sell records, uh, uh, sell, what what do they sell now? Records or downloads or whatever, you know, as music is made. Uh, But it's another thing for the leaders of our land to officially say gay marriage is marriage when it's not you know, uh, to uh, rally and try to, you know, uh, keep uh, abortion going when uh, every abortion takes a life, you know, and all those different things. So we've invited God to judge us like that. So that's really what's upside down in God's eyes. But I'm thinking about these pagans here. And one of the things we're going to find as we go deeper and deeper into the uh, ungodliness in our nation is The church was birthed where everybody thought the church was crazy to believe in Jesus and to believe God's truth. And so if that's the way so much of our culture is now, particularly as the younger generations go, we already have seen it can be done, you know, because the early Christians had to do it. Now, older Christians, we will grieve because we remember such a better day for gospel and churches and, you know, and the arm of the Lord's not been shortened. He can send revival to churches. He can send awakening to the land. Uh, We could fill the tabernacle building every Sunday again, you know. Uh, Well, no, we can't. God can. God can, right? The preaching of the word can, and we might live to see it. Revival and awakening, and I pray for that. We all yearn for that, you know. Um, But um, there they were. And I'm thinking about these non-Christians. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And I think about what they thought and then what Paul was preaching. So just hang with me here a second. How would they have had to say this? So what I'm doing is I'm speaking as if I'm those guys, right? So don't throw things at me. (laughs) 
these leaders of Thessalonica that rejected Christ, they were saying, well, Pilate had Jesus killed and said Caesar is king. But these Christians say Jesus is alive and he's the real king, not Caesar. We teach you should hate your enemies. They teach you should love your enemies like Jesus did. We teach that slaves are property and class distinctions are important, that uh, husbands kind of own their wives too. They teach that slaves should be treated with dignity and with equal rights in their churches. And if they can get their freedom, they should do it. And that a woman is a co-heir of grace with her husband. What? Uh, we profit from people that are possessed by spirits. They cast evil spirits out of people who we can no longer gain profit from in their sin. We believe babies we don't want should be set aside to die. They teach that all life is sacred. We teach that sex is the meeting of an animalistic urge, and we include it in our pagan temple worship. They teach that sex should only be between one man and one woman who have exchanged marriage vows before their God. And then they say the husband and wife are equal before God. We speak of being a good man in comparison to other men. They say we're all sinners before a holy God heading for judgment if we don't repent and accept what Jesus did for. We crucify criminals. They say the death of Jesus as an innocent man on a cross as we crucified him is what gives life and that it's really us that uh, put him there. The message of Jesus so challenged the decadent culture around them and converts so stuck out as having different priorities that the gospel was flipping the world upside down and it's still doing it today. Think about when um, uh, Lottie Moon was in China as a missionary and she said, my goodness, You've got an acceptable cultural tradition to take a young woman's foot. And you think big-footed woman, women, that's ugly. So you take their foot and you bind it so the foot will stay small. She said, it's just, it's, it's against the way God created people. It's an offense to the gospel. It needs to stop. And she helped get it stopped. Amy Carmichael said, you take your little girls and you give them to the Hindu temple so they can be sex slaves to the priests there and those that they serve. That's got to stop. In the modern day, it's our friends uh, with the Saruni ministry. You know, that's where we're going to minister in November in Kenya. And they say, you take these precious young ladies and you mutilate their genitals and you call it circumcision so that, that the, the sexual act will be painful for them the rest of their life with their spouse, you know, uh, as a way of, uh, we don't even know what you're saying there, but, but, but no, you know, that, that is an offense to a holy God. And uh, so... The gospel has always challenged, you know, uh, we, uh, we're going to see in Ephesus, they sold all these idols. And when people were turning to Christ, they stopped buying the idols. They burned their uh, Wiccan books and stuff like that, the witchcraft books and things, you know, they were turning from and turning to Christ. And these guys said, listen, um, the gospel's impacting things. This whole city, this whole place is going to change. And I can tell you that it did change. I mean, when you think of pagan uh, Rome, the gospel changed everything and brought in what we call Christian Europe. And then, um, you know, after that, uh, you know, brought in some of the greatest scientific learning as people basically said, hey, God gave us all these things to discover. We just need to assume we can find it. And they did. 
And, uh, you know, it's amazing how we're descending back into paganism in the West and in America now. So we're losing all those wonderful lessons and the gospel will need to happen again here in our country. But I wonder, are you the type of person who turns the world upside down or you, are you the kind of person whose world is upside down? You know? <laughs> and so we want to be among those who love God and it shows. Loving God, loving others, making disciples regardless of the venue. Paul, as usual, right? He did it in the synagogue. He did it in the marketplace. He did it in the church. He did it from house to house, even in prison. And whether praised or persecuted, look at verse 10. They sent him off to Berea. And what did he do? He went into the synagogue, as usual, right? He's just repeating the thing in the next place. So I want to read 2 Timothy 4 uh, as we close up here. Um, very cool what Paul later wrote to his protege, Timothy. Second Timothy 4, 1 through 8, he said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus, who will appear, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But Timothy, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the faith race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. It's our turn now, right? Keep on doing the things we do as usual, and the Lord will take care of the results. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.